podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Where would sport be without broadcasting? Where would broadcasting and TV be without sport? As Sky says, it's only live once. This is Great British Bosses from Anything But Footy, the Olympic and Paralympic podcast, meeting the women and men behind the scenes of British sport. I'm John. And I'm Michael. And in this episode, we want to learn how the sport we love gets onto our screens, into our homes and phones, and how the decisions are made. And there's no one better to tell us than someone whose career started in sports marketing. She was the publicist for arguably the most famous and now infamous Paralympic athlete of all time. She sits on the board of Great British Wheelchair Rugby, and now she's taking sports rights away from the aforementioned Sky. I'm Kate Clayton, and I'm the Sports Partnership Lead at Channel 4. Kate, great to have you on Great British Bosses from Anything But Footy, and very timely to have you on, because what a time for sport at Channel 4 at the moment. The most recent rights win is England Men's Football Internationals. Congratulations on that, but it must be great at the moment to be part of Channel 4 Sport. It certainly is, Michael. Thank you. It's uh, it certainly feels as though it's a new era for, for Channel 4 Sports. We've got a very, very um, talented head of sport, a guy called Pete Andrews, who's got a vision around what we've achieved in the past with sports and, you know, sort of the, the changes and challenges that we've taken on and we've brought to, to UK audiences. And, you know, he's had a vision where he wants to go after sports properties, bring more sports to free-to-air television so that more audiences can, can experience live sport than ever before. And it certainly is a really fantastic time for the broadcaster. I know, obviously, your main focus, if you like, is work around the Paralympics. And we obviously want to talk at length about the terrific strides that Channel 4 has done with Paralympic sport. But the, the football deal is an interesting one because... I'm of that era where Channel 4 Sport was sumo, American football, bit of cycling, kabaddi. It was sports that we didn't usually take an interest in. But England men's football internationals is pretty much about as high profile and as big as it gets. What was the thinking behind going after that? Well, I think that the main, you know, the, the main thinking there, Michael, was that we wanted to bring football to free-to-air audiences. It's the first time that the Nations League has ever been available to everybody and anybody. Um, you know, we think it's really important that more people really do get to experience sport. And obviously by, by attracting and winning the rights to major, major competitions such as those means that we're able to then attract advertisers, which then helps with our longer-term ambitions of being able to broadcast other sports that don't necessarily get the profile that they, that they have had in the past. Um, and, you know, we're, we're hugely excited for it and we hope that everybody comes and tunes in and enjoy seeing some international football on Channel 4. Because it's slightly different from the website where it says we're willing to take creative risks and give opportunities to newer untried sports. Could it be damaging to other sports? You know, we are called anything but footy. We like talking about sports that are not just footy, although we are football fans, obviously, as well. But could it be detrimental? I don't think it I don't think it can, John, because I really do believe that you need to have those big those big moments and you know sort of really attract some of those big sporting events, which then really does attract those advertisers, which I've mentioned. And, and if you get the advertising in and if you're getting audiences to tune in, you've got an opportunity to promote some of your other sports events and create further sports fans for, for some of those other, you know, for some of your other events that you're going to be showing 
you know, whether it be through linear television or digitally at a further date. So I think that we're viewing it as an opportunity. Um, it is the first time that we've had football, you know, on, on the channel for a long, long time, for a couple of decades now. Um, it's not the only thing that we're doing. You know, we've got a lot of rugby league that's happening at the moment. We're showing uh, 23 Formula One races this year in, in our highlights packages, um, as well as, you know, sort of Paralympic sport as we as we look ahead to Paris in 2024. So football is, is part of our sport strategy at the moment, but we are really thrilled and delighted that we have been trusted and tasked with with broadcasting all those matches. I'll stop grilling you on that. Uh, let's rewind. How do you become the sports partnership lead at Channel 4? So it started 17 years ago. Um, I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to be a sports journalist. Didn't really know how to get into journalism. And I had a background as, as a pretty decent swimmer. I didn't, I didn't compete internationally, but I was a pretty decent swimmer. And so my experience was having swum, knowing really hugely interested in sport and having a journalism degree. And there was, um, there was a recruiter that was advertising for a, work, for a role doing PR for Sputnik, um, which was a communications agency and Speedo was going to be the client there. And they took me on because of my swimming background, not because of what I had learned at university. And so I spent nine months at Sputnik before I moved over to Fast Track Agency, which was the most phenomenal agency run by Alan Pascoe and, and John Ridgeon and a host of other really, really talented people who have gone on to do incredible things within their sports, you know, sort of sports marketing and sports broadcast careers now. And I spent 10 years there working with some really phenomenal accounts um, as well as the work that I did with with Oscar I did a lot of work with the National Lottery Promotions Unit and you know having got a huge interest in Olympic and Paralympic sport the opportunity to work with anything up to 1200 different athletes who were lottery funded and profiled them within media which then kind of linked back around to, to journalism journalism that I had studied you know, it was incredible. Um, and it was it was a really amazing decade that I spent at that agency. And there were a number of events that we had created as well. Alan Pascoe and Dave Gordon at the BBC at that time created an event called the Paralympic World Cup, which had been, um, you know, which was a vision that had been created so that so the athletes had the opportunity to compete together in a number of different sports a bit more often than once every four once every four years. So my Paralympics knowledge really grew over that decade. And when Channel 4 broadcast 2012, which of course broke viewing records and it really did transform the broadcasting of Paralympic sport and it challenged and changed perceptions to disability and disability sport. After 2012, the broadcaster realized that they, they wanted somebody to come in and focus on Paralympics in between the games so that it didn't just get lost, you know, so that the, the public opinion that had been created around it and the monumental change that had been made broadcasting a Paralympic sport wasn't, wasn't then lost. And there was somebody whose focus was on, you know, sort of looking ahead to the next games, making sure that the relationships that we had with stakeholders, with other sports, and with also with broadcasters around the world, you know, there was a job to be done educating other broadcasters and talking about what, you know, what broadcasting a Paralympics can do for audiences and, and broadcast perceptions. So, yeah, it's been, it's been, it has been a varied career. I feel incredibly fortunate. It's a career that I absolutely love. Um, and, and plenty more to come. You joined Channel 4, obviously, in November 2013. So you weren't with Channel 4 at that ceiling-breaking moment, if you like, of 2012. But how, how do you look back at, at London 2012? Was it a highlight for you in your previous role? Oh, most definitely. I mean, London 2012, for a couple of different reasons, was just the most incredible professional experience that I've ever had. Um, you know, one of the parts of that was amongst the, the many varied PR, you know, sort of PR ideas and creatives that we had, there was a series called The Magnificent Seven that we'd created with the Daily Mail. And 
back in 2005, 2006, we identified seven athletes with Neil Wilson from the Daily Mail, and we followed them all the way through to 2012. One of those was Tom Daly at the age of 11. Another was Lewis Smith, the gymnast. Um, Shanae's Reed, who was the BMX, BMX rider, and Rachel Latham, the Paralympic swimmer. And seeing those athletes, having gone through this journey with them as much as I could in the PR sense, you know, sort of follow their stories, seeing them achieve incredible things on home soil, you know, in London was uh, was just magnificent. You know, Magnificent Seven was the series and it was magnificent as a culmination. So, you know, that was phenomenal. Um, my involvement in London 2012 was also as publicist to Oscar Pistorius. You mentioned you mentioned that role earlier. Um, and it was it was a phenomenal time doing that. You know, it really was. It, you know, Oscar qualified for the Olympic Games. We spent a lot of time working through um, sort of cast ruling on, on the artificial blades that, that Oscar was racing on there was an awful lot that he had to overcome to actually get to the start line um you know sort of public opinion at that time around whether he should or shouldn't be competing had been sort of a major piece of major piece of comms work you know that, that we were working on and to see him get to the start line you know of the, of the 400 meters at the olympics in london and you know huge cheering crowds he qualified for the semi-final at the end of at the end of his race and um and i'll tell a story that there was there was a little cubby hole that we'd been given um, just before you get to the mix zone, because if Oscar was going to go and run, you know, sort of go and do the two hour media gauntlet that he was going to have to do, if he's wearing his racing legs, it would end up causing him real pain. And of course, he had to then get ready for the semi-finals. So we've been given a cubby hole and I was stood there with his everyday artificial legs that he wears. And um, he kind of comes off the track and he's jumping up and down and he's screaming and we're, you know, both kind of, you know, sort of in, in, in rapture saying this was the most incredible thing. And he says, he says, Kate, he says, what do I do now? What do I go and say? And, and you know, all of the media training in the world just went out the window. And I said, Oscar, just go and speak from your heart. And, you know, he goes up with a huge smile on his face, does the media gauntlet. And it was it was a phenomenal couple of weeks for him, the Olympic Games, um, you know, and, and then he returned three, four weeks later for the Paralympic Games as well. And, and he finished on that final evening, retaining his 400 metre crown. So it was, it, it, was, it was quite some experience. I took one night off during London 2012, the Olympics of London 2012. And it was the night that Usain Bolt won his 100 metres title. I think Christina Horogu won a medal that night as well. And I was inside the stadium because Oscar Pistorius was competing in the Olympic Games that that night, it, it was a game-changing moment for for para sport to then go on to the Olympic stage, wasn't it? It was, and you know, there is, I have to admit, there is a constant debate whether the Paralympics should be held at the same time as the Olympics, especially when you do. I mean, it, there aren't many athletes, but there are some athletes that end up, you know, wanting to and achieving um, qualifying and competing for the Olympic Games. But the thing is, is that the Paralympic Games, it's still such a young movement, and it is a movement that is on the move, and it is a standalone event in its own right. It has got an awful lot of backing. It has got some major broadcast deals. It's got some major sponsorship deals and it deserves the platform that it's got as a standalone event. You know, it's one of the three, four biggest sporting events in the world. Um, and I do believe that it should stay that way. I think that there is enough, you know, there, there, is, there is enough behind it that it deserves to stay that way. And, you know, what Oscar did was that he, he certainly shone a light on the Paralympics and, and he helped raise the profile. But during London, so many other athletes emerged, British athletes and international athletes. And there are statistics, you know, the IPC, people like Craig Spence like to quote that before London, if you asked British public to name one or two Paralympians, 
not that many of them would have done, you know, sort of around about 20, 25%. After London, the percentage is 75% that could name at least five or six Paralympians, at least, you know, and it, it just really does show the difference. And it shows what London 2012 Paralympics did for, you know, did did for that particular event, particularly in the UK. And, you know, whether it's sort of Johnny Peacock, Ellie Simmons, Ellie Robinson, you know, the wheelchair rugby team, the wheelchair basketball teams, there are, you know, the canoeists, the rowers, there are so many. And, you know, they all deserve their moments, you know, when it when it comes to when it comes to the Paralympics and the, and the light being shone on them at the biggest time. With Oscar Pistorius, he obviously, as I said right at the start, was famous, world famous at that moment. And then, of course, came infamous for what happened. Is, is that damaging to the Paralympic movement? Or do you, can you look back and go, no, actually, what he achieved at 2012 should be something that is remembered? I think it's the latter. I definitely do think it's the latter. I think that, you know, the circumstances that happened and where we are now it, it is what it is. But what he achieved can never be taken away from him. You know, he really did raise the profile of Paralympic sport that others have now taken on. And they, you know, they're now taking it on and they're the ones that are constantly progressing it. Paralympic sport now looks incredibly different than it did a decade ago. The progress that's been made, you know, the sponsorship deals that are around in, in Paralympic sport, how many other broadcasters around the world, how much media exposure there is. And it really is incredibly different. But what he did achieve you know, it, 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 it gave people inspiration at that time. And, you know, inspiration is a, is a term in Paralympics that probably gets used far too often. But, you know, there, I remember being with him walking around the Olympic Village and, and people would be coming up to him, pointing to his legs. And he's got his everyday legs on saying, where are your legs? Where are your running legs? I want legs like you. You know, and if you can, if you can be honest and open about disability with a general, you know, with this generation of children and the generation, you know, over the past 10 years and with future generations where people are open about disability and they want to know more and they're not scared of it, you know, and there has been perceptions in the past where people can be, you know, scared of the unknown, scared of something they don't know about. And he was always so open about talking about his disability and the fact that he could run and he could run incredibly fast and, he focused on the ability, not the ability, not the disability. And, you know, I do think that that perceptions being changed is, is partly down to him. So London 2012, as Michael said, broke the ceiling for Paralympic sport. You then come in at Channel 4 and have to keep building it. I mean, that's that's a tough, that's a tough gig. How, how did you get to go to, to, to the point where you go, actually, this is what we're going to do in Rio and it's going to be bigger than it was in 2012? I think that the advances in broadcasting have been um, have been quite significant since 2012. You know, in terms of digital side, you know, digital and streaming and, and profile across digital and digital and social media was, was fairly young back in 2012. And it has only grown since. You know, we had a deal last year for Tokyo where we streamed every single one of the Paralympic sports that were brought live from OBS to our audiences. We had up to six, you know, 16 live streams going at any one time. So you're then reaching out to a different audience, you know, about 16 to 24 and, you know, up when you go up to 34, sort of year old audience that everybody is so keen to get hold of. And you're attracting them to your coverage through digital because, you know, we know the statistics that that is where a lot of people like to consume their information, you know, of that particular age group. Um, one of the other areas that I think that we really worked hard on was changing and building on how we merged sport with entertainment. So the last leg was created for London 2012, which was hugely, hugely popular and, and incredibly successful. 
And we grew that in those years between 2012 and 2016. It's now a standalone show, you know, a new satirical show that's standalone in its own right. Um, and and though you know the three guys that are on there are incredibly popular and incredibly well known and we've we found that we knew that that was a property that worked well people did want to merge entertainment and sport and you know so then we look at our who are going to be our presenters for 2016 and we're making sure that we're kind of really aligning with that and then moving forward to 2020 as well and yeah I think that there is still a lot more that we can be doing there are innovations that we're looking at we hope to do some broadcast innovations for Tokyo but the COVID restrictions meant that they weren't quite possible but we like to constantly challenge ourselves you know we're, we're the UK Paralympic broadcaster we've got a lot to learn still we like you know we like to think that we've done incredibly well but we've got a lot to learn and we've got a lot that we we can still be doing and broadcast innovations is an area that we're really focusing on um, and we want to keep encouraging and enticing our current audience and our new audiences to come on the journey with us to Paris and hopefully LA in four years time if we get the rights to that when you know when when that right still comes up um, but certainly with Paris on the horizon you know it's an hour away it's a brilliant time zone for us we're treating it like a home games. We think that the British public will treat it like a home games. You know, you can hop on the Eurostar, be over there in a couple of hours. And uh, we hope that people really do get behind it. And uh, I think that there, there's huge opportunity for the channel. You use one of the pet hate words of mine when discussing Paralympic sport, which is inspire or mm -hmm. inspirational. I think is one of the innovations, the tone of the broadcasting coverage of the Paralympics now, because I speak to Paralympic athletes all the time. I speak to Claire Cashmore and, and I had a really in-depth conversation with Ellie Robinson. And she said, I'm fed up with people describing me as brave. She says, I'm not in a swimming pool with a shark or a crocodile. That would be brave. I am just an elite swimmer. And that I think is where things have still got a bit of work to go, where we get away from that inspiration, bravery, see the disability first. Do you, do you accept that a little bit? Yeah, I, I, th I think work has definitely been done. Um, I think there is more work to be done, um, you know, sort of looking ahead to the future. I, I mean, I'll just go back to Tokyo as an example that the previous two games, you know, for London and Rio, we had we had our marketing campaign, which was focused on superhuman. Um, we do an awful lot of work with focus groups and with charities. We, we work incredibly closely with Scope. And we, we did some work with them that showed that the term superhuman, whilst it did its job in 2012 and 2016, was making some disability groups feel as though they're a little bit, um, that, you know, that people kind of approaching them and saying, well, surely you're a Paralympian, you're in a wheelchair, surely you're, in a, surely you're a Paralympian, and they're made to feel as though they weren't particularly great if they revealed that they weren't a Paralympic athlete. Um, so we realised that the term that had been created, and I said it definitely did its job for those two games, was a little bit outdated, and we wanted to challenge ourselves how we were going to move on from that. So we had um, the campaign for Tokyo, which was super human, which focused on the human parts of athletes rather than the super part of them. And it focused on the blood, the sweat, the tears, you know, what it takes to be a Paralympic athlete. And it wasn't about their disability. It was about, you know, it was about how hard they have to train, you know, the hours that they have to put in, you know, when things go wrong, you know, when, when their training and competition results aren't what they're expecting, they've got to get themselves up and they've got to pick themselves up and get going again. And it was a real focus on, you know, the human side. Of, of what you know what those athletes are going through and it's the same as what any athlete goes through in any sport and the the strap line for that particular campaign was to be a Paralympian there has to be something wrong with you and it was an, it was a phrase which was provocative but provocative in the way that we wanted to show people that you know you say 
you're going to go and run the marathon. Well, there's got to be something wrong with you if you want to go and run 26 miles. So there's got to be something wrong with you if you're going to get up every day and train, you know, to the extent that you do and you want to go and make the Paralympics. And we did find that the tone that we, um, you know, that we used for that, we worked, in, as I said, we worked closely with SCOPE and the British Paralympic Association and the International Paralympic Committee as well. The tone that we took and, and the feedback and the results were incredibly positive. And I think that, you know, a focus on, on athletes, what they can achieve rather than the, you know, using that word inspiration, which, you know, there's no getting away. It will always be around um, because, they're, they're, you know, it is, it is an event which does have very inspiring people and, and what they've had to overcome and, and what they've achieved. But it's a real focus on those individuals as athletes at the end of the day. That's what they are. They are athletes and they train hard and they compete hard and they have successes and they have failures. You're singing the same song as us here, Kate. I've got to be honest with you. How important was it, and certainly with Beijing, to have a presentation and reporting team uh, that for Beijing was 100% disabled as well. It was, and, and it was very important to us, actually. And, and it felt as though it was the right time. Um, you know, we had we had seven presenters and we had a number of commentators as well. And it shows that it shows that broadcasting and broadcasting presenting has come a long way. And, you know, I think it's important to point out that we didn't put those particular people in those in those roles just because they are disabled. They are all incredible um, you know, incredible presenters in their own rights. You know, some of them, Lauren Steadman and, and, and Ellie Robinson, a former former athletes who have shown a huge passion for presenting. And they've shown that they're good. They've shown that they're really, really good. Ed Jackson, you know, is, is a real star that has shone from his sort of rugby knowledge. And he's been able to transfer that knowledge over into Paralympic sport because he's got huge interest. I mean, Adi Adepitan is just phenomenal. Adi, you turn on the TV. I think Adi's on it most weeks, which is brilliant. He doesn't just do sport, you know, and, and, and the other athletes that were with us. And it felt as though it was the right time. I mean, you know, we have to ask the question that Paris in two years time, would we have a fully disabled lineup for our presenting team then? I don't know. You know, I mean, having a summer games without people like Claire Balding, um, who is so well known and so incredibly knowledgeable around Paralympics, that might be fairly hard, but that's a challenge to us. We're currently undergoing a tender process for our production company. So, you know, the creative vision and, and the editorial context around which which are presenting, you know, which of our presenters and what the presenting team um, will be for Paris, will the rise. But certainly for Beijing, um, it felt as though it was the right moment and they did a brilliant job, every single one of them, and it was an absolute pleasure to work with them. Channel 4, it's got the England men's international football. It's got the Paralympics, Rugby League, Rugby Union, F1, cricket as well that you've mentioned. Is the Olympics something that you could see on Channel 4 one day? Who knows? Who knows? I mean, there, there are... It's all about it's all about rights. It's all about rights deals. It's all about how much it costs. Um, you know, there is a you're in a different model with the Olympic Games now, with the fact that the Discovery is selling the rights, you know, over to the UK rather than in the past, where um, you know where the BBC has had the rights to the Olympics um, outright. So who knows? The reason I asked the question is I want to reference something you said right at the start, which is what Channel Four have done with Paralympic sport is they've kept it relevant between the games and the cycles. And I wonder whether there's that opportunity with some of those Olympic sports that capture imagination, like Taekwondo, like triathlon, that we don't see week to week. There isn't grandstand anymore, for example. We don't hear about people like Max Whitlock enough. 
considering what he has achieved in his career. And I just wonder whether Channel 4, More 4, 4, 7 might be potentially the platform to be able to do that better than what we have at the minute. Well, I think that, you know, any sports, any of your Olympic and Paralympic sports, they do have a challenge between games, you know, to keep themselves within the public's conscious. Um, and I think that even sports like athletics, where, you know, in the past have, have had a number of televised Grand Prix, I think I think that they're struggling. Um, and I think that each of those sports have got to think of creative new ideas as well. You know, don't just rely on linear television. Look at what you can do digitally. Um, you know, I, I think that if you've got sports that can really focus on how they can look at broadcasting in a different way, I think those are the sports that, that could emerge. Um, you know, we, we, we certainly look at a lot, of, a lot of pictures and a lot of bids that come in when it comes to Olympic and Paralympic sport, and we will all, always consider them. There is only a certain amount of hours that you've got on, you know, within the schedule. Um, and just by looking at things in a different way and really focusing on what you can do on digital media and reaching those audiences. I think, I think that's where we would like to see sports sort of really investing, you know, sort of some, some, some time and thought process. A couple of questions to finish with for me, Kate, you mentioned earlier about working with the national lottery, the good causes, and obviously that funding is so crucial to uh, team GB and Paralympics GB, uh, the UK sport model. Is that sustainable? We're about to go through another, um, well, it looks like a recession on, on potentially on the way. Um, obviously, we had that just before London 2012 and lots of question marks about funding. That's really been maintained since 2012. It, can this be maintained? And, and from your perspective of a broadcaster, I assume you would want it maintained. Well, the thing is, is that I, I think that lottery funding has firstly, it's transformed sport in the UK. Um, you know, I, I used to be, as I mentioned earlier, I was a pretty decent swimmer. I was never going to compete internationally, but I finished at the age of 18 because that's what you did because there wasn't any way that you could make a career out of it. Lottery funding has come along and given athletes an opportunity to be full-time athletes in, in their chosen sport. And I think that it truly has transformed sport. Um, I think that you've got some very, very good people who are overseeing you know, places like UK Sports, um, Sport England as well. If you're looking at grassroots, Tim, Tim Hollingsworth, who was formerly of the BPA, is, is um, chief executive over there. And I know that he is really focused on what he can be doing at the grassroots and community level and getting participation growing and, and sort of he's doing some wonderful things there. And I think that funding into those sports is always going to be important. Um, it's not even, it's not, it's not just the fact that you've got athletes that can, you know, sort of, earn enough money that they can compete as full-time athletes. It's the fact that you've got the support services behind them. You know, you've got your coaching, you've got your nutritionist, you've got, you know, sort of your physio, you've got people that are going to be looking at sort of mental health, you know, and, and you've got a number of different areas that that funding is going to pay for and athletes simply wouldn't be able to compete against the best, you know, against the best and the rest of the world without that, because, you know, the UK might have, come up in how we've approached sport and and our achievements but so is the rest of the world and I do think that it is still incredibly important um you know I will also say that the work that I do with GB wheelchair rugby um before Tokyo wheelchair rugby didn't receive any funding and it was a shock to the sport when that announcement was made and whether or not it was the right decision or not that's that's the UK sport to you know sort of really look at that but obviously they came out with the gold medal in Tokyo, which was absolutely phenomenal. And being on the board there, I couldn't be prouder of them. And that was definitely one of my highlights. And I think what, what that decision made um, 
British wheelchair rugby do is it made it have to really think about how it was going to commercialise the sport and how it was going to go out there and attract sponsors. And it did it incredibly well. And obviously the results speak for themselves. They've now got the funding again, which just means that it's that little bit easier for the sport and the governance of the sport so that they can, you know, sort of ensure that they've got the right coaches in place and they can ensure that they've got full time athletes and, and, and such like. And, you know, so there are some decisions that have been made in the past that have been hard for sports to really swallow and I know that that model is being looked at that it's not just cold hard medals um but it's still hugely hugely important and you know back in the days where I was working with the National Promotions Union you know one of our um you know one of our strap lines that we used to say and you know very proud to say is that you know you play your well it's two pounds now it was a pound back there you know you pay pay your pay your two pounds on the national lottery each week you might not become a millionaire but you're helping our olympic and paralympic athletes achieve their dreams and you have played a small part in that and that is always going to be true and i think that if people can remember that when they are playing lottery that they are helping towards good causes i think that i think that you know that funding model can continue and, and to thrive kate clayton sports partnership lead at channel 4 thank you so much for joining the podcast thank you Podcast Network.